1: the impact on staff has been huge. Um, I took a voluntary 25% pay cut, um, our senior staff a 10% pay cut, our um, staff below senior an 8% pay cut, but nobody below $75,000 a year got a reduction.
0: Welcome to the Mentor TV podcast and stay curious with Patricia Falco Beccali. Welcome back to another episode of COVID-19 from Crisis to Creation here on Mentory TV. I'm Patricia Farko-Bekali, your host. Let me kick this episode off with one fundamental question to you. Don't you miss it? Don't you miss public life? Don't you miss public events? Getting ready in the evening and then going out to a music festival, to the ballet, to the theater, or to a wonderful concert. Get some sort of experience you can't get from Netflix, an experience that really stays with you for the rest of your life. Well, since COVID-19 did hit and the lockdown did hit most of the stages too, most of them are not open yet. And Who knows when are they going to open? And once they do, in what sort of shape or form will we be able to really have these kind of life experiences, what public life is really about? Well, in order to get some answers to all of these questions I've just posed, I invited the artistic and the executive director of New York's Carnegie Hall, Sir Clive Daniel Gillison. He is with us for about an hour to answer all of this. Thank you very much for being with us here, Clive.
1: Well, Patricia, thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Well, Clive, let me quickly update our um, Mentor TV community and our viewers on who you are first of all I have to say you're my third knight on Mentor TV (laughs) few of them (laughs) have been knighted by the Queen yourself back in 2005 and another one that has been knighted in Italy and as well as in France so I'm very proud of that one coming to you you've been uh, the executive and artistic director of Carnegie Hall since 2005 so about 15 years before that you were in London for the London um, Symphony, symphony orchestra uh, for actually about 35 years, you spent with that institution. It was so funny because my research showed you entered when I was born and you exited when my daughter was born. That would be 1970 <laughs> and 2005. You're, um, trying
1: to, you're trying to age me too
0: much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we give it all away. It's fine. We're relaxed about it. And um, you have a tremendous career. Uh, you are Cellist. But what I thought was very interesting is that you. Your mom is a professional musician. Your dad, a businessman, yet he was very artistic too. And instead of following that kind of DNA push, you first of all started studying um, mathematics and then go, oh no, this is just not not good, uh, not enough. And uh, and you went to music and then where well, the rest is history for in terms of your wonderful career. All right. That is not half about you because I could get on for about two hours, but... Let's get to the point straight away, Clive. Let's recap and tell me a little bit the status quo of Carnegie Hall, what this COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown really means for your institution.
1: Well, I mean, it operates, the so many different levels on, on which we're having to work. Um, I mean, the first thing that happened, of course, is very, very quickly with the realization of what was going on March the 12th, we closed down, we canceled all our concerts through to the end of June, through to the end of our season. Um, So the initial thing was we were spending huge numbers of hours, both contacting artists, undoing plans that obviously take years and years of love and care and attention to put together. Not only were we needing to look at the immediate future, but we were also having to look at the long-term future. And... We started planning multiple scenarios. Um, What happens if we're able to open in October, if we're only able to open in January next year, 21, April, June, uh, April, 21, or even lose the entire season. So we had to map all of those scenarios. We had to map how we get, if if we've got to physically distance people, how are we going to make the halls work? What are the financial repercussions? How do you manage of handling staff? How do you keep everybody safe? Um, So, I mean, the early days were pandemonium without having the slightest idea which one was likely to be the real one. And I think that that reality remains. Um, We still don't know. I mean, we're cancelled at the moment through now till January the 7th. idea whether we're going to be able to open again in January or whether we'll lose the entire season or part of it. Um, So, all of that was the, the work we had to do at the beginning. It's all about connecting with artists. But then at the same time, the other thing we've been doing is restructuring, not just the whole of the upcoming season. No matter what, um, if you can't have full halls, um, which you won't, no matter what happens, um, what do you have to reduce by to try and create something that might be a viable, I can only say might be because you have no idea what the situation is going to be when you get there
0: yeah and we will talk about that in a little bit more in-depth, what sort of, uh, you know, creation you are making out of the crisis and what the way forward is. Let's quickly just uh, stay with what you mentioned that you had to kind of re-budget everything, replan everything, and the artists, of course, are the first ones potentially to suffer uh, despite Carnegie Hall being one of those lucky uh, institutions to receive governmental aid under the PPP program. Uh, and uh, I think you, you received more than 5 million, but that didn't last very long. You could not keep on going full throttle. You had to reduce staff and even, I think, uh, also reduce salaries.
1: Yes. Well, um, initially, we had to furlough quite a few staff who were people who only work if the halls are open, so ushers, stagehands, and so on. So that happened right from the start. As you say, we then got a PPP loan, which one hopes can be um, forgiven. The PPP loan ran out, and we had to furlough a further 51 staff. So, you know, you say artists, but also staff, the impact on staff has been huge. Um, I took a voluntary 25% pay cut. Um, Our senior staff, a 10% pay cut. Our um, staff below senior, an 8% pay cut, but nobody below $75,000 a year got a reduction. So we did all of that. We obviously made every cut we conceivably could do. um, But the balance as well is, how do you make sure both looking after staff, um, but also, you know, that you don't lose key skills, knowledge, experience that you're going to need in order to open up again? Um, But, I mean, as it happens, the staff who remain, I think, probably have been working harder than ever um, during this period. And, you know, for most of us, we've been working seven days a week. Um, you know right off into the evening and it's the exhaustion as well of being forever on a screen um, you know which leaves you at the end of the day completely drained yeah. um, but, um, but, and then as you say the artists as well i mean for whom this is catastrophic because it's not only the issue that instantly from one day to the next they stopped earning money it's a bit if you imagine an olympic athlete who has to work towards a point at which they're going to perform at their peak. Well, artists are expecting to do that every day of the week because they're performing all the time. So how do you keep practicing when you've got absolutely no end point? Um, You know, you're still trying to keep as if you were performing tomorrow, but there isn't at the moment. You've no idea when tomorrow's going to be. So I think the psychological side of it is just as tough yeah. Um, as the impact it has on their lives.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think to, to keep that discipline and that motivation going and the optimism, I guess, to get the energy and uh, you know live today and practice today as if the performance was tonight. Uh, yeah. Quite harsh, yeah. And uh, you know, some of the other institutions in New York, the, the Metropolitan Opera, they didn't get a PPP loan at all. And uh, as far as I know, they had to cut more than 3,000 staff and, and the helm there, Mr. Gelb, he actually wavered his 1.5 million euros dollar salary totally until you know (laughs) things are coming back again so huge huge differences here between the before and after and I think Carnegie Hall never made a loss and the first time uh, you know you're finding yourself despite uh, the the loan the state loan in a dire financial position and emotionally as you were saying uh, it is a huge impact let me let me pick up on what you were alluding to earlier on Clive and that was new models So, because uh, you're exhausted, the staff is working more than anything, and anybody goes like, hang on, the stage is closed. What are you working on? What are you doing? So, are you just trying to replicate whatever is on stage now, online? What are you
1: doing? No, in the end, you've got to work to your medium. So, you know, the things that you would do in a live concert are not the things you do digitally. Um, So, we created a series very quickly called Live with Carnegie Hall, where we involve artists. I mean, there's an artist um, who will lead each program. It's a one-hour program. They'll lead it. They'll be the host. And then they'll invite other guests. And we try and engage every single program around storytelling um, so that the artist is really telling an important story. It may be in their life. It may be about a certain type of music, an era, whatever it happens to be. Um, So we've done a, a whole series of those. It's given us the chance as well. For instance, we did a fantastic program, which was a 100th anniversary birthday party for Isaac Stern, who saved Carnegie Hall. Um, so we did that with Yo-Yo Ma, Maniacs, and many, many other great artists, like Perlman, Pinkus Tuckerman, Midori. So it gives you the chance to tell really important stories. And, and, of course, with artists all functioning from their homes, you can't put on great symphonic concerts or anything like that. I mean, there are certain things you can do where you digitally uh, pre-record everything and pull it all together, um, you know, which are hugely time consuming and can be great fun. Um, But in general terms, you're relating to artists individually or maybe in twos or threes. So we've done a lot of this work. We've switched all our education work to digital. Prior to COVID, we were reaching about 800,000 people a year with our education programs, mostly in America, but more and more around the world. So we've switched all of that to digital. And again, we're now continuing to develop our education work online so that we really have a massive program that is digital. And we're reaching similar numbers of people now, and, and we'll continue to grow that. And one of the things that lies behind everything we're doing um, every digital development is to try and say let's make sure that what we develop is something that will be utterly meaningful when we get back to the, the live real world so that what we do then becomes complementary and both things enhance each other because no, neither will ever replace each other. And after all, you know, you've also got to accept that New York, I mean probably not even 1% of the world's population, visits New York, let alone Carnegie Hall. Um, So therefore, the things we do online are speaking to completely different audiences and much wider audiences our live
0: concerts. Yeah, and I, th- I think <coughs> it's a very interesting trade-off between uh, the quality of the experiences um, when you are live and you're sitting in the auditorium like in a packed auditorium and you, you feel also the reaction from your neighbor, which I think is half of the experience. You know, if you sit really? at home and watch a movie or you're in the theater and you hear the others eating popcorn, again, it's a different kind of feel. So that is one thing. On the other hand, the quantity, the reach um, is different and, and you are really democratizing in a way, music like that and the experience and also the education to, to places and people that would not, never be able to even you know afford a ticket uh, to uh, to the hall or even the, the, the flight ticket. What I want to ask you is, do you think in that sense, the technology is isolating us or really bringing us together in terms of music?
1: Well, I think it's bringing us together as much as you can without it being a, a shared experience. Um, so. You know, if I think even before the, us being able to do this, um, you know, audiovisually, visually, um, even that would have been far less meaningful. So, you know, when one thinks of all the things that we're doing now in terms of sharing music, artists being able to share the things they care about, all of that, if this had happened 30 years ago, we would all have been far more isolated. Even, even 15 years ago, yeah, yeah. we'd have all been far more isolated. So I think in that sense, technology is, is definitely bringing us together um, as long as we don't see this as an alternative. Yeah. It's not an alternative, it's something that helps when you need it, um, and you've got to devise everything in such a way that it's really meaningful, but it'll never replace the live experience.
0: Yeah, and this this live with Carnegie Hall that program that you you know seventy five minute program where you where you mentioned storytelling, Clive. I think this is such an excellent concept because there I actually find added value going online because I find out maybe even personal stuff about the artist, something I would never had access to if I'm in the auditorium and see a wonderful you know goosebump generating performance. But how much I know about the artist is my research online or the booklet I read. But there I get an insight, the peeping Tom effect, into where they live, how they live, and how they actually sound, perhaps even a cappella, you know. And, and and that story, I think, gives somehow depth to, to the artist and then to an experience which is slightly different to the one in the auditorium.
1: I think very different. I mean, the fact is, in the auditorium, there's this extraordinary sense of being at an event, sharing it, as you said earlier, with a lot of people. So, I mean, you know, there's something really irreplaceable about the shared event and the shared experience. Having a direct connection with the artist, which you can do electronically, which you you really cannot do in the concert hall, um, is an added dimension. And it's something we're looking at. So how do we add that dimension to the live experience? So we're learning as well in that sense that, you know, there's things you can do digitally that you cannot do live. So is there a way that we can make that part of the future as well?
0: Yeah. What I think is interesting, uh, what, what you touched on as well, how to stay in contact um, and connected to all of your ecosystem, to all of your stakeholders that will be the artists, but of course also those people that you employ making the whole thing happen, be it the ushers, be it the ticket sellers, but also your patrons. Let's talk a little bit about those those sponsors because you must have had a culture shock coming from the UK <laughs> where you had tons of funds flooding into, uh, into art, into the world about, so the subsidies, uh, to New York, to Carnegie Hall, and you had to do it all yourself. So fundraising must have been very, very new to you as a you know as a person, uh, as a professional on one hand. And I wonder, how are you managing these crises? And, and the pandemic right now is not the first crisis you had. You must have gone through something similar, maybe, um, in 2008.
1: Well, yes, I was here for 2008, and in fact, we managed to survive 2008 even without losing money, um, you know, which was a huge achievement by all the staff. And, I mean, essentially, we transformed our business model then. We cut about 30% out of the budget within a very, very short time. And the thing I said to the staff then was, if you can all help us to create a 30% cut in the budget, we've got to do it in such a way that you can't see that it looks any different. Um, what we're doing, and everybody worked unbelievably hard, and we managed to do it. We got through. We didn't lose money, and we didn't actually have to lose any staff either. Now, this is completely different. It's impossible um, to react in that way because, firstly, it's going to go on and on, and you don't know how long that on and on is. Um, It it was very finite in 2008, however difficult, Um, and you could transform your model, and you still had audiences coming in and so on. So the thing was, everything was alive, Um, In a way, it is not today. I mean, we've already, last season, which finishes June 30, um, we lost $8 million, which is the first time we've lost money, you know, as far as I know, for, you know, certainly the 15 years I've been here, but much longer. Um, And it was impossible not to. And we will lose money almost certainly much more than that this season um, that's coming up. And it's impossible, again, it's impossible not to if you're not going to lose everything. Um, In terms of staff, in terms of people, experience, skills, knowledge, if all of that is not to go, and then what are people going to stay involved for? Um, You know, here you have the model, as you said, I mean, where basically we have virtually no public subsidy. I mean, we had the emergency funding um, from the government around PPP, which was really just to keep staff on for an extra period. It, um, it wasn't to keep the operation going. Um, so that that was a short-term thing. But in the UK, I mean, I need to correct you slightly okay. in as much as the UK does have public funding, yeah. but nothing like the rest of Europe. I mean, the UK, like it is in so many other ways, is kind of mid-Atlantic. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, we have s- quite a lot of public funding, but I'd done a lot of sponsorship work when I was in the UK, and I remember when I moved from being a cellist in the London Symphony to being manager overnight, um, and it was something I'd never been interested in or wanted to do, but it kind of just happened, um, and in, because of the emergency at the time. And the thing, I, initially, my view was, uh, I will do this as long as I never have to make speeches and I never have to raise money. Those were my two conditions. Um, well. and, uh, Here I am in America where half your life is making speeches and raising money. Um, But but the interesting thing was, I suddenly realized, I mean, after a while, that raising money is not actually about asking for money. It's about two things. It's about relationships with people, it's relationships, and it's sharing vision. And if you have a vision that is utterly compelling, you actually don't, effectively, you don't have to ask for the money you are asking them to be part of the future and part of an inc- extraordinary future that will transform lives everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, now, funnily enough, I love fundraising because it's about relationships and it's about sharing a vision that I believe in passionately. So, it, it, you know, fundraising is actually good fun.
0: No, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a good point. And thank you very much for that correction. And uh, interesting what, what you were saying about, you know, more or less, once you have a vision, the money follows, and it's about relationship, and people that deeply care about art and they know about it, they, they kind of breathe it in and out, as you do, being an artist yourself. Um, I looked at this, uh, this sector and funds in general, or subsidized art sector in Germany, and everything seems to be um, subsidized and administered by the states or the municipalities, and you do actually have an arts minister in every single state in germany and not only that all of the artists themselves be it uh, the actors the dancers um the concerts uh, the, the, the 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 players you know the the, the, the real performance. Artists, yeah. Yeah, performance artists they are all on state salaries with all the benefits with pensions etc so they really are hired and and in in munich it has so many theaters full-time orchestra for 1.2 million people it's flabbergasting how much money and support is actually coming from the government in Germany uh, into the arts, yet of course everybody wants to go to the big stages in the US, wherever the money comes from, which is quite funny also um, to see. Clive, we touched about it, uh, on it a little bit uh, earlier on, the future. Let's talk a little bit about how you envision the future, talking about also keeping in touch with those patrons and keeping uh, the, the funds rolling for the post-COVID era in terms of when doors are open. Perhaps it will have to coexist with COVID-19 uh, for a long, long period of time. How do you envision it? Are you able to prepare for it? Is it going to be social distancing? Is it going to be, you know, you've got, I don't know, almost 3,600 seats in the three halls, Carnegie Halls. Is it going to be you're only selling half of the tickets but double the price? What What is the
1: strategy? What- well, firstly, it won't be double the price. Um, no matter what, I think our view is that you can't increase the prices. Um, you know, we, and we have to remain democratic, as we've always tried to be. We want to make sure that what we do is available to everybody. So the price range is uh, at, at large, um, but there's also very accessible pricing, and there always has been, and that's a fundamental of how we think. Um, I mean, our view is that without a vaccine it's going to be well-nigh impossible to look after people properly. Um, You know, but even when a vaccine comes, I mean, there have been some surveys which have shown that something like, I think up to 40% of people are saying they're not going to have a vaccine, Um, you know, which I I simply can't comprehend, Mm. Um, you know. And maybe, I mean, this is one of the things about surveys is people never do what they say they're going to do. Um, You know, I never believe surveys anyway. Um, And so we'll see. We can't tell. But our estimates for when we begin to open are probably that we won't have more than 30% attendance. So that means we're going to have to do a lot less performances. Um, Otherwise, we'd go bankrupt very quickly. Um, So, you know, we're having to look at all the different scenarios. But they're all speculative. Because the reality is we have no idea what people are going to do. And even if you tried to do a survey and said when we open and there's a vaccine, are you going to it mean a thing? Because people, what people answer and what they do is never the same. Yeah. That's and so, same. you know, so therefore, you know, we're going to have to just try and work this out in a way where we try to make sure we're looking after the institution as well as serving people in the best way we possibly can and looking after staff as well, um, you know, because we've got to look after everybody's health because if we don't do that, everything collapses. Yeah. Um, so, so these are all the things we're looking at, but we're reckoning probably 30% at the beginning. And that's whether that's January or April um, makes no difference because once you start again, um, it's going to be in the context of people having not been to things and still not necessarily feeling completely safe. You've also got to take into account that people behave very differently around things they have to do and things that are voluntary. Um, so if people feel they've got to get out to earn money, they will probably take certain risks. Um, to go to a museum or a theatre or a concert, um, you don't have to do that today or tomorrow. You can, you can wait a bit longer if you choose. However extraordinary the experience, you don't, there isn't a necessity yeah. in terms of your life for that to be today. Um, yeah. So those are all the things we're having to calculate. I mean, look, I personally think everything in the end will get back to normal. I mean, it always does. It doesn't matter how horrific the circumstances, whether it was 9-11, you know, even in my lifetime. During wartime, concerts went on, um, you know, in the past. I mean, in history, you've seen so many times where a city, a particular activity, has been written off because of something that's happening today. As long as the experience is extraordinary and you know kind of yeah. unmissable is what you've got to try and make it it's got to be something you know that you don't want to live without and that has to be one of the parameters that guides everything we do it's no good aiming for good you've always got to aim for extraordinary but, and, so and you know and as long as what you're aiming for is extraordinary people will feel they have to come and i think you know, of course people will come back in the end.
0: Personally speaking now, also being responsible um, for Carnegie Hall's future for the entire um, you know vision you just, just mapped out, um, and for the employees, do you feel under pressure to now really put this extraordinary product performance out there? Um, do you feel under pressure that once you're back, you need to be back with such a bang that people from 30% of uh, attendance will go up to 100 in a very short amount of time
1: it's not a pressure because it's the pressure we should live under every single day of our lives i mean as far as i'm concerned every time we develop an idea or a project i always one of the lenses i always say to everybody is we've got to look at this through the lens of can the world live without this you've got to make something so special that the world cannot live without it that's what you've got to feel about it Um, because then if you're talking about it in terms of fundraising, in terms of selling tickets, it doesn't matter what you're talking about, to the artists, um, the staff, then everybody will come along with you. If it's good, who can get excited about good? Um, So that is a demand we make of ourselves every day of the week. And it's one of the hardest things in the world to do because every single season is conceived, and has to be, as the greatest season we have ever put on. We've got to do that. And then the next season, has got to be greater, therefore. Um, you know, how on earth do you do that? But that is what you have to do in the arts, and the arts just has to be about that. And that's the pressure every single one of us lives under, literally every day. Otherwise, we shouldn't be here. We shouldn't that's, be doing this.
0: Yeah, it, it really shows that, of course, you have that education in, uh, in uh, you know... <laughs> um, as an artist yourself because discipline and practicing eight hours a day for that performance um personally I, I uh, studied ballet for many many years at the conservatorium and again there was nothing good enough unless it was perfect it was extraordinary and it was just excellent everything else was just rubbish <laughs> I mean it was like yeah. or not worth it and unless you can't provide that you shouldn't you shouldn't be there you shouldn't be yeah. on stage. So well, that you,
1: enough, you use the word perfect I mean the interesting thing is, that's what one aspires to, but you never reach. Um, and you know, the, the thing that, about all the greatest artists I've never, ever known, I mean, you know, every single one of them, they never feel satisfied with today. Uh, tomorrow has to be better. And they've got to feel that way throughout their lives. Um, and the minute they stop feeling that way, they've stopped being an artist. Um, and, and I always think that institution, have to think of ourselves as an artist in that way, Um, that nothing is ever good enough. And and it doesn't matter how good it was today, how can we do it better tomorrow? Yes, it And that has to drive every single thing we do. And I remember Rostropovich putting it in a very simple but profound way when somebody came in and asked the question a million people do of artists, what is your favorite piece of music? And he said, it's the piece I'm playing now or I shouldn't be playing it. And that is how one should feel about every single thing you do in life. And the same for us as an institution.
0: Yeah. And if you look back at the experiences you had at Carnegie Hall, but also um, back at, at your own life, and you published a book back in 2016, telling a little bit about the learnings um, and the experiences you wanted to share up to then, What what are the three key insights you would want to share here?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, firstly... I mean, this is no new thing, Um, you know, that you have to aspire to the extraordinary in every single thing you do. Um, But, I mean, I think there's more than three. I mean, I, I just tried to think of, you know, what really are the key things that have come out of this. I mean, one is how vital it is to stay connected and relevant to staff, artists, audiences, donors, everybody. Um, you know, all the time, even when we're shut like this. We have to be relevant and important to their lives. We've got to look after staff. We've got to look after everybody um, we can because they're all part of our future as well, Um, as well as, you know, the fact you can't lose skills, knowledge and experience. You've got to ensure all new opportunities have long-term value. They're not just for dealing with today. So we also feel very strongly that all digital transformation must be complementary to live music. This period has told us the importance even more of storytelling, because when you're trying to do projects like Live with Carnegie Hall, they have to be about great storytelling or they're nothing. So I think it's enhanced for us and and made us more aware of how important that is for the future. Um, With every single thing we do, we've got to be able to separate the vital from the things that are, you know, very nice to do, but not necessary. So one must never be doing anything that isn't absolutely necessary. And we've also learned, I mean, it's, it's very important, you know, to be looking at the issues of the day. I mean, when you look at what's been happening in America around race, um, I mean, it's very, very important for us to remain alive to the world we're living in today and really reflecting the key issues of our day. So that's become something that is absolutely central Um, To what we're doing, I mean, it always has been, but it's something we feel is even more important today because um, you know it's such a dangerous time, I think, for America in terms of race. I mean, America has been in worse places before, but the fact is, this should not still be an issue in America. Um, So I think everybody's got to feel: how do we all play a part in making sure race is not an issue for the future? Um, So these are all the sort of learnings that I think have come out of it. So it's, I'm sorry, it's more than three.
0: No, no, Um, no, it's good, yeah.
1: um, But they're all things that I think are absolutely vital.
0: Yeah. Claire, thank you so much for spending this time, your wisdom, your insight, and also answering quite a few questions I think I posed at the beginning here on Mentory TV. Such a pleasure to have you had on the show.
1: Well, thank you, and wonderful to talk to you as well. Thank you.
0: And thank you too, dear Mentor TV community for having joined us yet again for another conversation this time uh, with one of the names in performing arts here with Clive Ginnison. So make sure to join us next time as well when we have another exciting conversation coming up.